0: You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Third Cup of Coffee. My name is Randy Bolander and we had a great weekend with The Bridge at a pop-up location for Easter in beautiful Martin City. If you're not familiar with Martin City, If you had started listening to this podcast and you were driving from the west end of Martin City, by this point in the podcast, you're at the east end of Martin City. It's not very big, but it was a lot of fun and got to see a lot of you. That was a blast. We will be back at the Culture House on this coming Sunday. So that was a one-time location there in Martin City, but headed back to the Culture House. Uh, Would love to see as many of you there as we could because uh, it's fun to be together. Of course, Easter, we taught on the resurrection. Who says that Jesus rose from the dead? And what did it mean in that time? And what does it mean to you now? Here we go from Sunday at the bridge. A couple of just housekeeping things, really quickly. If you would like to give, you can do that on the church website, or there is a big orange bucket in the back that we use for offering that says Home Depot. Because we can go fancy places, but we still can't have nice things. We still have a Home Depot bucket for our offering. It's just who we are. Uh, it's not the weirdest thing about us. It really isn't. It just isn't. Also, if you live in the Grandview area and you heard yelling last night, I can explain. It was not me. It was Sally and Tyler because Sally and Tyler are engaged. Stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. So, so they are engaged. If you're keeping score, they are our second engaged couple. If you're single, so there's hope here, okay, okay we're two and oh however we haven't gotten anybody to the altar yet so it's a race now between the two couples and i may incentivize that somehow to see i don't know what i might do some kind of prize for the first couple or mocking the second i don't know what we'll do we'll think of something we'll think of a way to make it fun okay we'll make it fun thank you to everybody who helped out with our seder meal on friday how many of you were there what a great time that was so much fun Great to celebrate with your families. You know what caused me to realize that it was just a glorious event? We got home at 10 after 10 that night. Like, I knew it was like revival for me to get home that early. It felt so good. But thank you all for helping so much. You're awesome. Uh, for those of you who have walked out our 40-day fast with us, thank you for doing with that. Of course, you get to the end of the fast, and you all look at each other and say, so what did the Lord do, Right? And uh, we're still learning. There are things that that the Lord unfolds over time. This I know, the Lord understands sacrifice and he honors sacrifice. So if you were fasting specifically for something and you did not see that come to fruition, don't let go, okay? The Lord honors your sacrifice and he saw that. So let's just take a minute. I wanna pray specifically for those who were believing for something and you just haven't seen it yet. Doesn't mean it's over. God's timing is God's timing, but he honors sacrifice. So Father, we thank you for this season of fasting. We thank you that we can set aside days and deny ourselves so that we could feast on you. And for those that were hanging on to specific things that have not seen them come to fruition, Lord, I pray for patience and I pray that your hand would move. For those that are fasting and praying for healing or the salvation of friends, or even as we fast and pray for space for us to meet on a Sunday morning, Lord, in your timing, we say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Easter Sunday, obviously, we're going to talk about the resurrection today. One of the most recognized events, obviously, of Jesus' life, certainly the one that impacts our lives the most. You say, how do you look at the life of Jesus and determine what impacts your life the most? What was the most important event of his life? Everything he did mattered that we know of. Now, there were 30 years where we really don't know much about him, and it'd be fascinating to know what went on during those years, but everything that we have written down about him, it all matters. The healings matter. His compassion matters. His prayer life matters. But his resurrection changed everything it took something that was eternally true and it's like it suddenly made it real in time and space for all of us it's like the light flipped on and we all were suddenly able to see something that had been true about him from the beginning he is the resurrection and the life now his close followers when this happened didn't quite know what to think Thomas actually said, You know, unless I can touch his wounds, I don't know if I can even believe this. Yes, I saw other things he did. I saw him heal people. I even saw him raise other people from the dead. But how do you raise yourself from the dead? Like, what are the mechanics of that? You lay hands on yourself? How does that work? Jesus spoke of his own resurrection. And the telescoping influence that would have over all of us. And he spoke of it at the most unusual time at the death of a friend. He's standing talking to Lazarus' sister. Lazarus is still dead. What an unusual time to make an announcement about yourself being the resurrection. I know your brother's dead, but did you know that I'm the resurrection and the life? He said it then but his com- because his coming resurrection didn't matter just to him. It mattered to her and to Lazarus and to everyone who would die after that. With the man still dead, Jesus told the dead man's sister in John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he shall die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her this crazy question. Do you believe this? It's like, do you believe what I just told you? I'm the resurrection and the, and the life. Do you believe this? I think it's so intriguing that he prodded her a little bit. Why did it matter to him if she believed it? Was he looking for affirmation? Was it like Jesus kind of feeling bad about himself that day and needed somebody to pat him on the back? No, 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 no. He knew if she believed this about him, it changed everything for her. Why does it matter that we believe it? This morning, I want to ask you the question that he asked this woman. Do you believe it? And the secondary question is, if you believe it, why do you believe it? We did this thing last week, we're going to maybe continue this for a while, is I give you a cheat code to the sermon, okay? For those of you with short attention spans, or uh, maybe your mom asked you a lot of questions over Sunday dinner, if you get the cheat code down, you know what we preached about, okay? This is the cheat code for today. We're going to explore the evidence of the resurrection. We're going to ask, if it is true, what did it mean in the moment? And then we're going to ask, if it's true, what does it mean in this moment, you know that I'm a history buff, okay? I'm just, I can just go down a wormhole on history. I'm so interested in things like this. But it's only really useful if it's applicable to our current day. And the resurrection impacts our life and the life of every human being. But what evidence do we have of it other than our grandma told us about it, right? Some of you believe in the resurrection because your grandma told us about it. You don't even think about the fact that grandma thought the moon landing was faked you know, or, or was afraid to set up her fingerprint reader on her iPhone because that's how they get you. You know, there are things about grandma that maybe you didn't agree with, but why do you believe the resurrection? Are there more responsible or perhaps more knowledgeable resources about the resurrection that you could possibly believe? If we say he lives, who else says it and why? Let's look for a minute at the historical record. The historical record hinges on sources. It's all we have. Who said these things? We can't go back in time, so we read what has been written. If I hear my aunt talk about my great-grandmother, I can believe some of what she says, but if I find my great-grandmother's diaries, those diaries are a better source. Do you understand what I'm saying? So is the biblical account of the resurrection accurate? Based on source reliability... I believe that it is. In fact, though people that doubt the record of the Bible aren't really so much have a bias against scholarship, they've got a bias against Jesus. Hear me out. People question the accuracy of the biblical record, but think of it as if it were any other story from history. 350 years before Jesus was born, another baby was born. For the first 16 years of his life, he was tutored by Aristotle. By the age of 30, he created one of the largest empires the world had ever known. He conquered the entire world as he knew it and sat down at 30 years old and wept because there was nothing more to conquer. Some of you recognize this story. You know who this is. This is Alexander the Great. In modern-day Thessalonica, there's a statue to Alexander the Great. He is astride this massive black horse that history tells us about called Bocephalus. No one questions the existence of Alexander the Great or Bocephalus. If you were to go to a college history course and stand up when they taught about Alexander the Great and say, I don't believe in Alexander. I don't think he was that great. I think he was like Larry, the normal. And I definitely don't believe in the horse. They would laugh you out of that building. But did you know the source record for Alexander the Great? We have no written record of him until 300 years after he was dead. We don't have any reputable written record of him until 400 years after he was dead. But why doubt Jesus? We have written records that were transcribed from 10 years after his death. We have entire books and anthologies from 20 to 70 years after his death. Some of you are thinking, well, 20 years is a long time. Did people really remember 20 years and get it accurate? If you're over 35, you know exactly where you were on September 11th, 2001. You know that. Like, hard-boiled into your brain. Why? Because when events like this happen, we remember them. Yes, the historical record is accurate. If you doubt that Jesus was who he claimed to be, then surely you don't believe all this malarkey about Alexander the Great. Because that's completely unreliable. We don't just rely on a written record, though. We also rely on eyewitness accounts. If something as crazy as the resurrection happened, surely somebody saw it, and what did they say? There are multiple instances of people not just hearing about it, but seeing it and testifying to it. Jump forward from the resurrection, 25 years probably, and Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he tells them in chapter 15, three to eight, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Truth is, probably to a thousand people. They would not have counted the women at the time. And he goes on to say, most of whom are alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, Last of all, to as one untimely born, he also appeared physically to me. His key points here, Christ, the lamb, was sacrificed for all of us. There are multiple eyewitnesses, 500 men, and he says, go ask them. They're still alive. Finally, he says, I saw, them, saw him myself on the road from Damascus. Now, with the passage of time, we have lost our idea of the impact of these eyewitnesses. But if you look at the New Testament, every book in the New Testament was either written by somebody who was an eyewitness to the resurrection or was someone who was mentored by someone who was an eyewitness. 2 Peter 1.16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him. You're not talking to somebody who heard it from grandma. You're not talking to somebody who heard it from someone five generations down. No, no, no. He said, we saw him. You might believe that 500 people all got together and decided to fake this, but you've really got to be into conspiracies. Jesus' resurrection wasn't just verified by those who were predisposed to believe him. There were even those in secular sources who testified to his resurrection. In the first century, information flowed a lot more slowly, obviously, than it does. Today it flows fast. This sermon is bad. You can text somebody in the middle of it and say, don't bother, okay? If you're late, stay late. Information flows fast, but because it flows fast, sometimes it's not accurate, and the sermon might get better. And you might have told somebody to stay, and then, oh, well, maybe you should have came. Fast doesn't always mean better or more accurate. We've all seen in the news, breaking news means goose egg. you, You just don't know what that means. Things were slower in the first century, and that slowness tended towards accuracy, And it tended towards even those without emotional attachment to the story of Jesus, to testifying of his death and resurrection. For instance, Tacitus, the best known Roman historian of all time, wrote extensively about the crucifixion of Jesus and how unfair that it was. Often the most common, trusted, secular sources of the day, who didn't really know what to make of Jesus when he was alive, wrote about his resurrection with great admiration. Josephus was a Jewish non-believer who was a slave in the emperor's house. He eventually was released from slavery, took the emperor's name, and was treated as a son. And he is the greatest authority on first century Jewish life. And he, as a non-believer, wrote this about Jesus and Christians. Listen to this. He said, Now there was about this time a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. Again, this is a secular historian writing. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, he was the Christ, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them again alive on the third day as the divine prophets had foretold and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. Can we just admit that when the church talks about itself, we are sometimes given to a little bit of hype, right? I, I've said it before, best source of fiction anywhere, church websites, for real. It's like, you know, dynamic teaching, no, 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 yeah, it's okay. But we tend to talk about ourselves in glowing terms, but how do those who don't believe talk about us? In this case, a man who did not necessarily believe still testified to the resurrection of Jesus. If Josephus only knew that 2,000 years later, that tribe of Christians would still not be extinct. We've got the historical record, we've got eyewitness accounts, we've got the secular record, and then we have an extraordinarily honest account of the resurrection in Scripture itself. We all know that people tend to tell stories in a way that makes them look good. Or we tend to tell stories in a way to make them more believable. But in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have one common thread. All four of them mention that the first people to realize that the resurrection had taken place were women. That would have never been done if they were trying to prove a point in a strong way. Women were not allowed to testify in court because they were considered too emotional to be responsible witnesses. So they, you know, gave them low-pressure jobs like raising children and things like that. Too emotional. So when the Gospels tell the story of the resurrection and it just so happens that women discovered it would have been easy if you were trying to prove a point to say, you know, some of the believers... But no, 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 they all aligned with John chapter 21 and 2. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple and the one who Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid them. All the gospels agree. Women did it. If you were trying to make up a story that would be accepted by the general public, you wouldn't have told it this way. But they were so committed and shocked by the truth, they're like, no, 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 no. Win for the ladies. We've got to to tell the story correctly because they're going to be telling it for the rest of all eternity. Finally, just one of the last logical reasons we believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection is the lack of any legitimate public protest. If you were a Roman official and you had crucified Jesus... And now they're saying, he's not in the tomb, what would you do? Just go open the tomb and drag him out. Like, let's go show them. Instead, they offered excuses for why the tomb was actually empty. They said the disciples took the body. And even that was fabricated on the spot. Matthew 28, 11 to 13. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests that all had taken place. And when they'd assembled and taken counsel, they gave a significant sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, the disciples came by night and stole him away while we were still asleep. When your only defense demands bribe money to keep the story straight, you don't have much of a defense. So we've got the historical record, we've got eyewitnesses, we've got the fact that they told the story as women finding him. We have this idea that they had to fabricate stories to cover where the body of Jesus was. Jesus wasn't just missing, Jesus was alive. And to understand the power of the resurrection, you've got to understand then, okay, what did this mean in that moment? What happened because Jesus was alive? What were the ripples in the pond of history when that stone struck the surface of the water? What were the effects? The events leading up to the death of Jesus and the three days that he were in the grave were hard on morale, to say the least. Judas, one of the 12 who had betrayed him, went out and hung himself. Peter, the most outspoken of all of the disciples, the one quickest to defend Jesus, the one who would take a sword to a prayer meeting and cut off an ear, denies him. Like, it was a bad day for the team, okay? Not their shining moment. And it's obvious by reading what happens when Jesus finally does appear that they are not emotionally in a, self, in a, in a really good spot. They're petrified. You know, if you leave your kids at home when, when they're younger, and it's just, you know, you're getting that, that point where do you leave them or not? And okay, we leave them. And when you walk in after having left them, those first five seconds reveal volumes, right? It's like you don't know what you're going to walk into. and You kind of walk in fast and assess the room. See if anything's on fire. See if anybody's standing on a table. You know, it's just immediately you know what's going on. This kind of thing happened twice to Jesus where he appears on the scene and it revealed the nature of how the disciples were doing. Luke 24, 21 says, they're they're walking on the road and they don't recognize Jesus for whatever reason. They don't recognize him. And he's talking with them and they tell him, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And yes, and beside all this, It's been three days since all this happened. The disciples themselves are telling Jesus, yeah, that didn't go the way we thought it was going to go. Can you imagine Jesus hearing this? He's alive, and they're going, yeah, I guess we're just going to go back to fishing. Then in John 20, 19... It says on the evening of that day, on the first day of the week, the doors were being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So here we are three days after the crucifixion, and the disciples are not doing well. They are officially freaking out. We've given three years to this man. Now he's been dead three days. What do we do? What happens to this fearful, betrayed, scared group of young men when they learn the truth of the resurrection? Suddenly, these group, this group of people becomes fundamentally different. Like, they become so bold with the idea of Jesus is alive, and you're like, how did you become so bold? Just a minute ago, you were hiding. Yeah, but he's alive now. And because he's alive, I'm not afraid of anything anymore. I'm not even afraid of death. And if you look at the history of those disciples, almost every one of them were martyred. They gave their life. The same disciples that hid behind locked doors were ready to give their life for Jesus. Only a resurrection makes a human being that bold. Peter and Paul served the Lord until they were martyred by the emperor. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified. He's like, do you have any last requests? Yeah, can you crucify me upside down? My savior was crucified normal. I'm not not worthy of that. Andrew preached his way through Turkey and was crucified. Thomas, the doubter, the one that publicly went on record and said, I don't believe, became such a fervent believer that he preached in India and eventually his body was punctured by the spears of four soldiers who couldn't get him to stop preaching any other way. Philip was the one who converted the wife of a Roman proconsul who in turn murdered him for it. Matthew died a violent death. Bartholomew traveled the world and was martyred. James was clubbed to death for his faith. Simon was martyred in Persia when he refused to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias replaced Judas and was later burned to death. The only disciple that wasn't physically martyred was John who was allowed to die of old age, although history says at one point was put in a cauldron of boiling oil and unaffected. All of them were persecuted. Most of them were martyred as a result of their belief, what, that Jesus was a good guy? No, 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 no. That he had risen from the dead. Who takes a spear or is burned at the stake to continue a charade? It's not like the disciples got together and said, let's just say he rose from the dead. No, no, no. You don't get martyrs out of that. Those things don't happen for people who are dead and gone. No one lays their life down knowingly for a fraud. To understand the power of the resurrection, you got to know who says it and what did it mean to those in the time. And then to experience the power of the resurrection, you have to ask, okay, what does it mean for my life? If it's, okay, all the historical record, all of that agrees, yes, yes. And okay, it really inspired these 11 guys and they added the 12th and they went out and they died for it. But what does it mean for me? Like I said before, history is interesting, but it's only useful if it can be applied. Jesus is not content to be interesting to you, okay? Jesus is not happy if you're just slightly intrigued with the story and like the music, He does not want to be something that just holds your interest for a while. We have spent 30 years in America in a consumer mentality when it comes to church, okay, where we shop for a church, we find one that fits our needs, we plug in, and I understand, we like things, there are certain things that we need, but the mentality of consumer Christianity has not served the church and it has not served believers, I know a young man that decided to spend 52 weeks, one entire year, visiting a different church every week. Doesn't that sound miserable? I'm sorry, that just sounds like a nightmare. 52 weeks of where's the bathroom? It's on the stage, what? You know, it's like 52 weeks of something weird in every building. And write a review of the church. By a month in, I was watching a critical spirit begin to develop. And by the end of that year, he didn't even know if he believed in Jesus anymore. Because that consumer mentality doesn't just project itself onto a congregation, it projects itself onto Jesus. And they start thinking about, well, you know, I'm interested in him. He's not looking for your interest. He's not looking to hold you captive for a little while. No, no, he's looking for a relationship with you. He wants to give you more than warm fuzzies. He wants to give you life forever. He wants more than your interest. He wants your heart. He desires a relationship. He wants to give you new life, new hope, new vision, freedom. Some of you are listening to me going, well, that would make me like an entirely new person. Yeah. Yeah. Your family's more excited about that than you are, but it's true. He wants to fundamentally change who you are because we are in desperate need of becoming people other than the ones we were at birth. You've heard of the phrase, they were born to win. Nobody was born to win. We were all born losers. The deck is stacked against us with the sins of generations and then the ones we create on our own. Somebody said, I'm not really concerned about original sin but being born with it, I've came up with a few on my own. We desperately need a way forward that is more than just a good church service and people who we feel comfortable with. We do not need to be our best natural selves. We've got to become what we can only become through a man who died and conquered death and rose again. Romans 6, 4 says, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk, 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 Live, extend in newness of life. The one who claimed to be the resurrection and the life said, "I want to take you with me, and I want to take you to victory." I want to ask if Rachel would come back up for a moment, and then the worship team. I am fifty or, and I am noticing a trend. The tr- one being when you get to fifty-five. You can't even pretend anymore. You're halfway between 50 and 60. There's just like, even a young 55 is still halfway to 60. It's math. But the other thing I have noticed is that people that are coming to the end of their days seem closer to my age than they were. I listened to a uh, podcast this week about hospice workers. And the thing that caught my ear Is that most of their patients were in my age? I have lived a lot of my years hoping to do things, and I still will do more things. But I'm realizing there are things in my heart that I just probably will not get to. Without new life, what hope do we have? He says, There are things in your heart that I know you want to do, but you know what? This life that you're living is not the only life you'll get. In fact, you're going to live forever with me. And you have destiny. Some of you, hear me, some of you who are 70, 80 years old, you have destiny and you have purpose and you have tasks and things that will please the Lord yet to do. And even the end of life doesn't mean it. Why? Because he rose from the dead. He's alive. In Titus 1, Paul writes about the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. His desire for you to live forever is not plan B. He's not behind the stage wiring wires together to make this plan work. No, his his plan forever was to live with you for eternity. Stand with me if you would. We're just going to go into worship and close out our morning. But I'm going to ask if everyone would bow your head for a moment. This morning, as I talked about life and death and resurrection, I don't want to move...